Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing from Monday, April 9th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we'll speak to the founder of Vets to Success, an organization that offers three different tracks for veterans in the culinary arts. Want to become a chef? They've got a track for you. Want to become a baker? They've got a track for you. Want to become a brewer? They've got that too. We're going to talk to him about his Navy career and how some struggles that he had after he left led him to create the organization. We're also going to speak to IAVA, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Melissa Bryant's going to be calling in to talk to us about the latest and greatest items being focused on by one of the newest veteran service organizations out there. So we've got a busy show heading your way, and it kicks off now as we welcome super producer Jake Hughes into the studio. Jake, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic, Eric. How about you? I'm doing okay, and uh, for those of our regular listeners, hopefully they got the message that we are now airing at a new time with a new format. We kick off at 0800 hours from now on, Eastern Time, and then uh, a recorded version playing Pacific Time, but starting off the uh, the new format today. And it's also going to be, when necessary, a longer show. There are some days where we've had you know so many people that we wanted to talk to, but we were limited. We could only get air from 7 to 8.30. Now we're going to be on from 8 to 10. Uh, sometimes that 9.30 spot will be filled with a best of interview. Sometimes it'll be filled with a brand new one, but it's going to give us a lot more freedom, a lot more wiggle room a lot more leeway particularly when it comes to talking to those veterans who are out west in the united states yeah but most importantly you get more of eric and me that's oh, that's yeah. the ultimate goal right there and sometimes that 9 30 segment haven't really decided yet about today but the 9 30 segment is going to be filled with jake and i talking about whatever nonsense pleases us pontificating pointlessly right and, of course, uh, I would pontificate all day about the fact that my New York Mets just swept the Washington Nationals. <laughs> Did you do it? Did you you bring the broom? No, I didn't bring a broom. Oh. I was planning on bringing the broom. But I, I got I was, I was just kind of like in a fog this morning. I was just walking around, like, getting ready, and it took an extra, extra bit of time for me um, because I was up so late watching the game last night. Baseball games, every Sunday night they have the game of the week at 8 p.m. Well, of course, the Mets and Nationals go into extra innings, and it took until the 12th inning. So I think it was like 1 o'clock when I finally fell asleep. Um, so this morning was just like, boy, I don't think I got enough sleep. Walking around, forgot to get the broom. I think what I do have to do is do a little drawing of an uh, uh, anthropomorphized New York logo with a broom sweeping up a bunch of little W's, those little cursive W's for the Washington Please Nationals. do that. And you know what? I, I know some op- some artists that would probably do that for you. Well, I'm going to have to do it myself today to get it to the people who run the web here in time, the ones who were telling me before how the Mets had no chance to win any of the games this weekend. Oh, no. <laughs> ah, how about they win them all? Also, uh, a big sports weekend. We had an article on Friday on the 
nonsense that happened up in Brooklyn with Conor McGregor. Mixed martial arts, a big sport, you know, in, in the veteran community and in the military community. It's something that's, I think, even more popular than it is uh, in the civilian world in general. You have a lot more people who are into it. Uh, and you came over and watched the fights this weekend, along with Phil Briggs from Connecting Vets, my old Navy buddy Jason, and uh, some really good fights on Saturday. Oh, some, yeah. Some hard-to-watch fights yeah. as well. <laughs> One guy, oh boy, his face... Did not look quite right. This dude was just a punching fight. bag for three rounds. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in the in the main event, you had Ally Quinta from uh, my former home in Long Island, guy I've met before, a very cool guy, a bit of a maniac, as they kept saying during it. It's accurate. He's a bit of a crazy person. He went five rounds and just didn't even try to block a jab the whole time <laughs> because he's a crazy person. Lasted five rounds, though, in that title fight. Uh, but, yeah, the Joe Lauzon fight. Anybody who watched that, oh, his face by the end of it his 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 team called the fight after the second round they were like no more we can't let him go back out there it was that bad but uh overall a fun time and always nice to have people get together for sporting events or other things i, I guess that's where the enjoyment that i don't understand for like the oscar watching party or the grammy watching party that's where that comes from having other people to talk to about it basically yeah pretty much it's it's a social activity and yeah. it really is because you take me for example i'm not a big sports guy i mean i do like ufc fights but for the and most the part houston astros yeah and the houston astros but the, the, even with them it's more of i like the experience of going to a game with my family and friends yeah. and, and all this stuff and being social because yeah. it's hard for me to sit down for three hours and watch a sports ball game as I like to say yeah I do it uh, a lot especially with the Mets now and you know I watched all three games over the past five days I guess it was Thursday Saturday Sunday watched all three games and uh, had a good time doing it but other than that other sports I'll watch fights by myself sometimes the last fights uh the last couple of times I had the fights on, um, ended up watching them by myself. And if I was watching that Joe Lauzon fight by myself, it would be like, oh, did you see that? I'd be saying to no one in particular. Yeah. <laughs> and it's nicer to have, you know, two or three people there watching it with you so that you all agree like, holy cow, this is not good. But yeah, overall, a pretty good weekend. And of course, now we're back in studio after a week off last week, preparing for this new format of the show and getting our interviews done and getting everything else that we want to get done, done, essentially. And that's what we're doing. And, of course, we're still going to have some of the same things that we had before, like Jake and Eric taking a look at the news. Here's one I'm seeing reported from Military Times, Jake, and this is one uh, that I think might interest you because the headline is, The Army Just Made It Harder to Graduate from Basic Training. Good. They say, this is Dateline in Fort Jackson, South Carolina, the day three of the basic training's culminating field training exercise, uh, and essentially it's it's harder. It's called This is the Forge. That's the thing at the end, I guess. Yep. Was that already there when you were doing it? Mm -hmm. It's the third and final field training exercise. Um, there are 44 tasks, battle drills, all this other stuff, and I guess they're being... Uh, a little bit more mission-oriented is what they're saying. And uh, Major General Pete Johnson, who's Fort Jackson's commander, uh, was talking to Army Times and said, essentially they had one mission, occupy a defense and dig a foxhole to standard, 36 hours of four days, no real sense of achievement at the end of it. Now it's more mission-oriented and they have a lot more going on. That's good, and that comes from Big Army, of course. Now for you, Jake, as a former drill sergeant, what would you have changed about Army basic training if they had made you, you know, drill sergeant extraordinaire and you're the guy who's going to come up with the uh, 
the changes on everything. What would the changes have been that you would have made to basically? I was Army? command drill sergeant of the Army. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, one of the things I would have done is actually I would have uh, cut down on the DNC. I would have upped uniform standards. I would have done more rifle qualification with optics mm. and in addition to iron sights. And I would also do what they did and make the final FTX harder. because What's DNC? Uh, drill and ceremony. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's important, you know, to sort of learn the rigors and learn discipline and all that. Right. But it's just such a small part of what we do in the military that there's a little too much focus on it in basic training. Yeah. And I, but I think that what they're doing here is a very good idea because in the field, that's where you do your job. Mm. And that's where you need to be able, they're, they're trying to catch up to the Marine Corps and their motto of every Marine is a rifleman. They're trying to make sure that every soldier knows the very basics of, can function as a basic infantryman, I think, is what they're going for. Yeah. Well, and they're saying that eventually they may also make basic training longer to accommodate for new things. Now, the drill and ceremony stuff is, it's interesting because it, it serves a purpose beyond what it is. I mean, listen, I can't remember, I don't think any time when I was in the Navy did I ever march in formation after basic training and then i think at a school a couple yeah, only of times in schools we did it a couple of times and even for the even then it was only towards the end because my class group got in a lot of trouble so eventually <laughs> instead of letting us uh, hobble over hung over to the school they made us uh, march over uh, together towards the end but other than that not once in my entire time in the military did we march in formation anywhere that I can recall. Unless maybe we did it as a joke one time. I think I remember <laughs> something where we did it as like a joke to like kind of make fun of the, uh, the the senior chief who was in charge of one of the places I worked. I, I'm not sure, but the the value of it in boot camp always was you know learn teaching people to follow orders basically and yeah. to do it like with with uh, military drill you know listening and doing what you're told to even if it's not the right thing you know and they try to mess you up to be like calm left calm right switching things back and forth and going like that uh, so it can have a purpose but yeah I think you you know what you may be right that they may do a little bit too much of it I mean we did a lot of it and again in the navy. It's just not something you ever do. It's it's not. And it seemed sometimes to be a time killer more than anything. Like it was like, all right, we've got 35 minutes between the end of this classroom uh, activity and before lunch. Let's go take them out to a uh, one of the blacktops and just do military drill for 40 minutes. Yeah, and see, and that's time that could be spent uh, going over the basics of rifle qualification. You could be going over battle drills, uh, first aid, things that are more important. Yeah. And, and the thing about optics on the rifles is interesting, too, because I've always wondered about that. Like, you know, they make you qualify on the iron sights, essentially. But if that's not what you're actually going to be using on the battlefield, then what's the point of that? The, pro the point is optics can fail. Batteries can die and all this other good stuff. So you yeah. need to be able to know how to use the iron sights on the rifle. Right. Yeah, I guess, but I mean, what the, the what's more often that it's not going to fail or that it is going to fail? Well, it's the military. We always plan for the you know plan for yeah. the worst. Yeah, I guess. But if you're now in the army, do they allow you to qualify with the optics as well, or is it always with iron sights? When I was there, basic rifle qualification was with iron sights, and then we did an additional advanced rifle marksmanship, which was with uh, iron, which was with optics. Okay. 
Yeah, that was like when we were doing our uh, our pre-deployment training because when I went over to Afghanistan, I worked for the Army as an individual augmentee is what they called us. Uh, we had to do it with the uh, the iron sights and even the people who had optics that they bought for their rifles because the, the Army sure as heck wasn't going to issue them to us. I mean, <laughs> I had no. an, I had an M16 that I'm pretty sure saw some action in Vietnam. <laughs> like it was it was an old <laughs> rifle. And when I got to, to or when I got to Afghanistan, the Germans were like, what is this rifle? It's crazy. They give you this rifle. Come get one of ours. And then it got the, the big German rifle. I actually preferred the M16 after using both of them. Yeah. So I kind of I was the it. envy of my entire company during my second deployment because when we were issued rifles, I actually got one brand new out of the box, an M4 that had never been touched, wow. still had the gun oil on it. It, w- it was beautiful. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. For us, I remember in our training group, they gave... They gave two or three people M4s because I guess they assumed like these are the people that are going to be out in the stuff or something like that. I saw one of them as I came home. She was coming home uh, at the same time. So we were in Kuwait for the Warrior Transition Program, I think it was called. Uh, She never went outside the wire with her brand new M4. I was outside the wire like every week for a couple of days. I was like, yeah. And they gave me, they gave me a gun that was used like at Da Nang and I'm using it in Afghanistan 50 years later. It's a bit of a problem, but, uh, yeah, it, it's it's always interesting to look at those training things and how things have changed. And there was a, a live video that the Navy did from boot camp at the pool. And I think it was maybe the MCPON or somebody like that, Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. So somebody big was doing a, a tour of Great Lakes, which is the recruit training center as well as the naval training center of most most of the Navy's uh, A schools, or maybe not most, but the largest concentration of A schools are also up there at Great Lakes. And the Pond or whoever it was was going around and they showed him, they live streamed on Facebook going to the pool and watching pool training. And they showed them doing the uh, jump off of the uh, or drop off of a platform that you have to do. I want to say it's like 15 feet up in the air or something like that. You have to drop off of it and then tread water and swim around, which when you go to boot camp, it's very interesting. You figure out that there are a lot of people who don't know how to swim, but for some reason thought, I'll figure it out when I get in there. So they get up to the platform, go off the edge, sink to the bottom like a stone, and then the Navy divers would have to go down, get them, and bring them back up. Um, But they showed it, and everybody was wearing a life preserver. And I was like, what the heck is going on with that? Never did that when I was there. I guess they got tired of swimming down to the bottom to pick up the people who can't swim. But the life preserver thing, I mean, a flotation device, (laughs) what if you don't have time to get to one of those? Exactly. It's the whole thing of preparing for the worst is that if, I mean, I'm not, I was in the Navy, obviously, but if you go overboard, I think it's the most likely chance that you're not going to have a life preserver or something on you. Oh, I'd say, yeah, you're, you're more likely than not to be out there by yourself hoping to get to a raft or, or a, you know, one of the inf- emergency inflatable boats that pops off. A lot of people were commenting on it. You know, Facebook Live, the videos go up, and you can see people commenting in real time. And there were like a few hundred of, what's up with the life preservers? Why on earth would they have those life preservers? And then there was something else that they did where you wondered if it was done more as a show for the visit than what they were actually doing. But the life preserver thing didn't make any sense to me. And it kind of kind of falls in line with that uh the optics thing where yeah you want to prepare for the worst and again if you are in a battle scenario and you're on a ship i also along with never marching in the navy never put on a flotation device on a navy ship on small boats yes where you're more worried about falling overboard because you hit a big wave on the uss saipan which is you know 900 plus feet long you weren't too worried about going in the water 
but if something happened, you you could end up going into the water. It could be a, a, a number of things that would happen. We've seen the collisions. Yeah, I didn't like that. I didn't like seeing that and seeing those changes. And that's you know that's that's certainly fuel for the guys who are like, oh, everything's easier these days. These kids are pansies going through. They don't know what it was like going through boot camp when I did. And watching that video, it's uh, there's a little bit of truth to that. Cause yeah. I, can, I remember I remember a few people by name who literally went off the edge of that platform and just sank to the bottom of the pool and didn't come up until the divers brought him up. And you'd ask him afterwards, like, dude, what was that? Why didn't you tell him he couldn't swim? He was like, I did figured it couldn't be too hard. I'd just get in there and like, dude, anything that you've ever tried to do for the first time. Like if you try to shoot a basketball for the first time and no one's told you how to do it, you've never had practice. How likely are you to hit a three point shot Yeah, and, it, and not hitting a three point shot? You don't have the possibility of dying, sinking to the bottom of a, 15 20 foot deep pool you absolutely do have that chance but i don't know maybe it's getting old do you think that's part of it where we look back on things and we're like that needs to be tougher stronger harder all that stuff or yeah. are things getting weaker legitimately and we have legitimate concerns about it i think it comes from the fact that our own perspectives are somewhat skewed by our memories and we remember it being a certain way and you mm. may might be remember it because remember when you come into basic training or a school or whatever it is you don't know anything about the military, anything about what you were doing. So to you, it was extremely hard. But now that you know what you're doing, you look back and you're saying, oh, that stuff's easy. So I think our perspective skews it a bit. I think it can, although I do think they've stopped doing things like uh, forcing you to drink three canteens of water and then doing yeah. push-ups until everybody threw up, which uh, that was unpleasant. But you know, it's one of those things that's actually kind of a fond memory now. Yeah. If you laugh about it, you're like, oh, geez. Some things have changed for the better. Some have changed for the worse. I think by the time I finished up, and both of us did 13 years in our respective services, respective and respected services, I think uh, after those 13 years, I, I was more unhappy with the changes I saw than happy. There were some good ones. Some of the uniform changes were great. I came in when we were still wearing bell-bottom dungarees. I mean, this was the late 90s, and we were still wearing bell-bottom dungarees. Now, there was uh, a point to that, that they were very good uh, using them as, we were actually just talking about flotation devices, turning them into a flotation device. You'd tie off the legs and you'd use it and you'd kind of go over your head and pop it down into the water, catching the air, hold it off, and it would turn into a flotation device. It was like watertight pants, essentially, and the bell bottoms made it easier to tie them off at the end, but they were just a bad uniform. Yeah. I never liked them. They looked the ridiculous. No, no, no. That uniform has always been there in Willow. That's a dress uniform. That'll never change. This was a light blue shirt, like a cloth shirt. And then I think I know what you're talking about. Bell-bottom dungarees, denim. They were not jeans. They were weird. Like the cut of them was weird. You looked weird. You weren't allowed to wear it off base. And then they switched to the utilities, which was the light blue shirt, short sleeve or long sleeve, and then the dark blue pants. Um, which was a little bit better. You looked more like a human being and less like a cartoon character from the 70s. So that was good. But again, you weren't allowed to wear it outside the base. Then they switched to the Navy working uniform, which was the blue camouflage uniform, which you know, I don't know how much we needed to blend in with anything. Again, when you're out on a ship, if it were going to be any color, you would think it would be gray camouflage. Also, the blue camouflage kind of helped you blend in with the water, which if you did go overboard... Not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. The other issue with it, and one of the issues that we constantly had in the Navy was you weren't allowed to go off base in it. You could stop to like fill up your car with gas, emergencies. 
Other than that, like I couldn't go to the grocery store in that uniform. In the army, you guys could wear your uh, the ACU. You'd see people in the ACU everywhere. I'd see people wearing the ACU to go to dinner and stuff like that. Technically, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to go directly home and change. But I think the army's a little more lax about it. And the navy's changed uh, that as well, somewhat. But again, my whole point was, why are you issuing us a uniform if you're so? embarrassed by it that you don't want us to be seen out in town <laughs> like why are you making us wear something that we're not now the officers working uniforms they were allowed to wear those anywhere they wanted to the chiefs they were allowed to wear those anywhere they wanted to the e6 and below were the only ones who are working uniforms throughout my time in the navy you weren't allowed to wear anywhere other than again stopping to like fill up your car with gas or something like because you're not human unless you're a chief or above yeah, and I remember stopping, I think it was my stepsister's birthday or something, and I remember stopping at a Best Buy in Virginia. I got off of work on a Friday. I'd had duty the night before. I hadn't been able to buy a present for her because I was, you know, 22, 23 years old. I was just dumb and put everything off until the last minute. So I went into Best Buy in my uh, in my utilities, I think it was, or my dungarees, whichever one it was. I even hate that word, dungarees. It's just a stupid it's, yeah, word. Yeah, it's a silly word. It's a stupid word. It's not silly. Yeah, it's stupid. Um, going in there and some chief came up to me and was like, what are you doing in that uniform out here? I was like, shopping. Just gave the answer. She, she got so taken aback by that. She's like, you know, you're not allowed to wear that out here. You're a petty officer, third class or second class or whatever I was. I was like, yeah, no, I know, but, uh, I needed to. So yeah. I am. <laughs> what command are you from? And the only way that you could tell from our uniforms was the ball cap that we would wear. So I did have a USS Saipan ball cap tucked into the back of my, uh, my pants and she kept, she knew it was back there. That's where everybody wore their hats when you took it off. She kept trying to sneak around behind me to get to it. So you just saw a chief and a, like a third class, like having this face off or like, I just wouldn't let her get behind Doing me. a Bugs Bunny routine, yeah, trying to keep her away. Because that's the only way she would know. And if she found out what command I was, she may have had the ability to call over to somebody over there and be like, Hey, you know, this guy over there. Of course, there are only like two people with my last name in the Navy altogether. So right. could have possibly found out that way. But yeah, I, I never liked those rules about, you know, you, oh, you need to wear this uniform to go out in public. We could go out in our dress uniform and the uh, the working uniform that was, uh, well, the, now there's just one, the black and tan, but it used to be either in the wintertime, it was the Johnny Cash's, that black long-sleeved uniform with a tie, and in the summertime, the white, uh, just white pants, white shirt, short sleeve thing. You could wear those off base, but the, the uniforms that we wore every day going to and from work, because nobody... In on ships or any place, uh, CONUS wore those uniforms every day. You wore the Navy working uniform or utilities or the dungarees. And the fact that they made it so difficult, it made you worry that if you had to stop to get groceries or something, I, that you could get in trouble for that. Oh, I hated that. And that's one of the things I would change. I think that serves the same purpose as the DNC and basic training. It's supposed to make you think of it like something special. And make you, you know, it's the attention to detail type of thing. Well, the something special is the dress uniform where you could wear anywhere. I could go to the movies in my dress uniform. You used to be able to learn how to fly in your dress uniform. I, it really, it, it didn't make any, it was just an inconvenience for an inconvenience sake, it seemed. Their argument was, well, we don't want terrorists to, to be able to see you and oh, follow Lord. you. 
and we'd be like, well, you know what? If one of them wants to just watch who's leaving the base, oh, look, there goes uh, Jake Hughes driving his, uh, you know, bright orange Humvee out through the gate. <laughs> we'll just follow him right from the, I mean, there's the, the uniform isn't, it may be the easiest giveaway, but it's not the only one. You also used to make us get these stickers on our car f- to come through the gate. You remember those? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy, that's a good way for somebody to know who's sitting in that car. And those stickers denoted officer and listed. There was something special on there for the flag officers, the admirals and stuff. Uh, that, the contradictions and things like that. Like You can't wear your uniform off base because terrorists might be able to identify you as a military member. Oh, by the way, here's a sticker that d- identifies you as a member of the Department of Defense. We need you to put that on your windshield right in the middle. Don't put it anywhere. It's got to be right in the middle, right at the top, so that it sticks out to everybody. So when you're not with your car, that'll give them time to figure out whose it is. Go ahead and, you know, you blow up your car or whatever. The, the contradictions were many. I agree. It doesn't legion. make much sense. There, Which also makes me think of the other ship I was on. God, I hated being on ships. But on the, uh, the Frank Cable in Guam, where they had a thing called Same Day No Way, and that's where you weren't allowed to have a single drink of alcohol and drive on the same day. And I got there and said, wait a second, are you telling me that if I'm at home on a Saturday and I have a beer with my lunch and then I want to go out to uh, the store or something on Sunday night, I can't drive there 10 hours later after having one beer? And the response I would get was the same day, no way. It was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And how are you going to enforce that? The only way they can enforce it is if you got a... um, if you got a DUI or something like that, or if they knew that you were at a function and someone had seen that you had a beer and then saw you driving the, they were trying to get people to snitch on each other and all this other stuff. Wow. That builds unit cohesion. No, they weren't worried about that. They were worried about, um, they were worried about, uh, getting awards for cutting down on, uh, alcohol infractions, alcohol related infractions, which there were, Quite a few still. I mean, they would talk about how there were none, but I was like, dude, two people who worked for me had to go to Captain's Mast for alcohol-related infractions, which it was still happening. And then they started doing random breathalyzers on the quarterdeck. Just everybody what? coming into the into work, like you could randomly be pulled aside. It tended to be the same people, quote-unquote, randomly pulled aside. <laughs> You're being pulled aside right now here on The Morning Briefing. Eric Dame and JQ's here with you. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes with Iraq and Afghanistan veterans of America. Keep it tuned right here. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing. I'm your host, Eric Dame, and ConnectingVets.com is your website. And we mean that. It's created by veterans for veterans and focusing entirely on the veteran experience coming from a team that knows of what we speak. Because each and every member of our team is very closely tied to the military, and almost every one of us actually served in the military. 13 years in the Navy for me, 13 years for producer Jake in the Army, and the rest of our team from a variety of backgrounds, but all very closely tied to the military, if not veterans themselves. So check out ConnectingVets.com for the latest and greatest coming from our team of veterans, giving you the best information available on the veteran experience. And of course, follow us on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. 
Another group you might want to follow on social media is IAVA, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, one of the newest veteran service organizations that has really gotten a lot done in their short time of existing. And right now we're going to speak to Miss Melissa Bryant from IAVA. Melissa, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Can't complain. Coming off of a nice weekend, so all that good stuff. But it's been a while since we talked to you, since we were off last week, and quite a bit has happened since that time. Uh, Some people may be familiar with the fact that the Secretary of the VA, Dr. David Shulkin, is now former Secretary of the VA, uh, and just regular Dr. David Shulkin, no longer Secretary in front of his name. Uh, How did IAVA respond to that news? I think we responded with the same response as most others, uh, shock. Uh, not so much shock that he was gone. Uh, unfortunately, the writing's been on the wall for that for some time. And a lot of the, the back and forth uh, between the White House and the dueling press statements, uh, it was all a distraction that ultimately hurts veterans. And so, sadly, uh, when he was ousted, that was not really unexpected. Uh, mm. The nominee, a little bit of a different story. <laughs> Right. And that nominee, of course, uh, his doctor, the rear admiral over at the uh, at the military hospital there. Uh, there was a lot of talk about possible replacements for Dr. Shulk. And as you said, the writing was on the wall. There was a lot of conversations swirling around about who might replace him. We heard a bunch of names out there, a bunch of different people. Uh, the doctor, Dr. Ronnie Jackson, was not one of those names that we heard. So did that really catch you guys off guard? I think it caught us off guard. I think it caught uh, pretty much everyone in our space off guard, everyone who's watching. Uh, I think there's been a number of short lists that have circulated throughout the community, and uh, Admiral Jackson was not on that list. Uh, We hope that he's capable. We hope that he's up to task, but that remains to be seen. Um, Throughout his career, it's an exemplary military career, exemplary um, medical career, but that doesn't necessarily translate into running a bureaucracy like the VA. It's a massive, massive bureaucracy with a $200 billion budget, over 300,000 employees. Um, You know, there's a cemetery network. It's more than just health benefits. Uh, It's an entire phone book full of benefits uh, when you add them all up on top of the healthcare system. So we hope that he's up to task. And it is one of those things where, you know, we've talked to the other VSOs and various other experts on this where we just don't know because of how good of a physician and surgeon he is, his career has kind of uh, kept him from serving in those military style uh, overseeing roles where you would oversee a hospital or a series of hospital or or Navy medicine or something like that. He's been such a top notch physician that uh, through no fault of his own, it's kept him from those managerial spots, I would say. Um, Overall, though, we can't know one way or the other so how do you think the, the decision ends up being made if they can't know whether he's uh, definitely experienced enough for this if he has the ability to do it since it's something that we probably can't know about that until he's actually doing the job is that correct absolutely well first and foremost i hope that in the confirmation process and we're hearing that there uh, should be a confirmation hearing sometime around the late april early may time frame the hope would be that that's a very rigorous confirmation hearing and that there's hard questions that are asked of Apple Jackson to discern what his managerial experience is, that were not experience rather, but his acumen, I guess. And um, beyond that, I would say one thing that is in the plus column, as we've all observed, is those who have the trust of the president, as Admiral Jackson obviously does, 
uh, tend to have a good relationship with him. So hopefully that's something that translates into a good relationship for the Department of the Veterans Affairs and that translates into good outcomes for all of us veterans. You know, and one of the conversations I was having with a friend about this was that, at least in this case, it it is someone who is a flag officer in the United States Navy. So you would assume, uh, also a physician and a surgeon, you would assume a very intelligent person, you would hope able to pick up on things extremely quickly. I mean, that's that tends to be uh, one of those things that we expect of doctors, especially high level doctors like Admiral Jackson. Uh, Do you have any hope for him to be maybe exactly what the VA secretary position needed? He could be. I mean, well, I, first of all, I have every hope. I think there's no one who wishes for the VA to fail. Mm. So I have every hope that he is, again, he'll be up to task. He has the, the instinct, the acumen in order to carry out this job. Um, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to ask of him. It's a lot to ask of anyone coming into this position. There have been former secretaries who have run massive bureaucracies, who have been previous cabinet secretaries, who, you know, had far better credentials on paper who were unsuccessful. Sadly, this is in uh, a department that's had, what, four secretaries, secretaries in as many years. And so there's a massive turnover. It's a big job. It's very hard to, to serve within this community that the rest of the world, the rest of the country doesn't really quite understand. It doesn't understand how the VA healthcare system in particular is so intertwined into the backbone of the U.S. healthcare system. And so in having that more global understanding of how the VA uh, fits within U.S. healthcare, how the VA fits as a bureaucracy within the U.S. government. That's something that he may not have experience in, but for all of our sakes, I hope that it's something that he takes to very quickly and hires good people. And that's going to be one of the keys, the people that he brings in around him. We're speaking with Melissa Bryant. Melissa is policy officer, chief policy officer for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, an Army veteran herself. And in addition to the change at the top, there was a statement put out late last week by the VA. Uh, I believe it was on Friday that it came out saying, hey, I know there's a lot of worry that the VA is being privatized. Don't worry, it's not. How did you look at that letter coming out from the VA uh, in the aftermath? of Secretary Shulkin's firing or resignation or whatever it ends up the the case was? Uh, It it was definitely um, a bit of a signal. It was a signal in that uh, that there's an offense now, I think, that's being added into the narrative coming from the VA. Um, It's indicative of a sea change that's taking place. Right now you have uh, formerly Undersecretary Wilkie from the Department of Defense. He was the Undersecretary for Personnel and Readiness. Now he is the acting secretary for the VA in the interim between uh, Admiral Jackson's confirmation hearings. And so with that, you have the DOD bent that's coming into, uh, into the VA where there's an idea of what can we do that will allow for seamless transition from DOD into VA. So when you come off of active duty or guard or reserve and you take off the uniform and you transition to VA, what could be done there? So that's a good thing. Um, but the press statement and debunking the myth, one begs the question, I think, of, well, but why was that necessary? Is, is, there, is there something afoot that needed to be addressed? And for most of us who are in this space and who are watching it, the argument would be yes. There's definitely a bear in the woods. There's something that needs to be addressed with privatization. And so to come out so forcefully with that statement, Uh, I think signals that there's a a fight to prepare for. 
I, do you think the fact that Admiral Jackson also coming from the Department of Defense Health System, I mean, that's where he's been his entire career. He's been very successful within it. That is a government-run healthcare system, I mean, fully government-run, just like the VA is uh, within the military. Do you think that that bodes well if he is, in fact, confirmed as Secretary of the VA for keeping the VA from being privatized, his background within uh, a similar health background? We, we should hope so, in that it's not that he's coming in completely cold. I mean, he's he's not a veteran. He hasn't used uh, VA healthcare. Um, doesn't have direct knowledge of of how that uh, system is run. But coming from DHS, uh, from uh, Defense Healthcare, um, that's not necessarily going to be something that would not help him. I would say. So I think that at least it gives him somewhat of a leg up um, than people would expect. Right, and you would expect that an admiral who's been working in D.C. for a very long time has probably had a little bit of interaction with the V.A. If he's the president's physician, you would you would assume that he would have some understanding of it. And, of course, coming from a similar uh, similar service, he certainly understands the Department of Defense Healthcare Services. So uh, one of those interesting things that we'll have to keep an eye on. But it brings up an interesting point as well where Jake and I were talking earlier this morning about the fact that when he left the Army, when I left the Navy, if we could go back, there's things that we'd change. We were talking about things as early as boot camp, things that we'd change that we didn't like about the military. So that could mean that, you know, even someone who's had as much success as Admiral Jackson within the Department of Defense Health Service, we don't know for a fact that he's a fan of how everything works and how, uh, you know, the, the government-run healthcare services work. Is that is that something that you need to take into account as well? Or do we just need to wait until we actually hear from him and know something about what he feels about all this? It's definitely something we need to take into account. Uh, we do need to wait and see what's going to be said. Again, this is why I come back to you. We really need to have a very rigorous confirmation hearing and, and uh, confirmation process with him to gauge where his mindset is. We, I think the question of privatization will definitely come up during his confirmation hearing uh, from a few senators. But um, in terms of you know, wanting to go back and change things if he could, and what his stance is on, on, on various things, we don't know. We just don't know. Uh, he's been, he's remained apolitical throughout his career, as any commissioned officer should be. He's also uh, never really been in a position, as you went through his uh, resume earlier, where he would have been in a position to even tip his hand toward where his leanings may be. So yeah. it's something we're going to wait and see. I'm hopeful that he will shed light on all of this during his confirmation hearing. And I hope that he will weigh the, the, the factors as he approaches the question, especially of privatization. And when we say privatization, we mean the expansion of unfettered access by third-party providers to use community care. Because I think that that's something where when they talk about debunking the myth of privatization, that definition is what really gets folks. And, and folks who are pro-privatization will say, well, there already is healthcare that's privatized by the VA. It's community care. We've always outsourced routine things out to the community. Yes, that's true. We're talking about the expansion of that. We're talking about unfettered access, like basically using the VA as if it's Blue Cross Blue Shield. The VA is not an insurance company. And so what I would hope is that Admiral Jackson, as he comes into this position, right now he's researching all of this. Right now he's getting spun up on what exactly has been happening in this space, who are the stakeholders? And of those stakeholders, that's what IAVA and other service organizations are there for uh, For him. We provide counsel and advise the VA mm -hmm. secretary. We have done so for our 14 years of existence, as 
have the other veteran service organizations. And so we hope that he takes us up on that. And he really does look to us for that advice and counsel as he makes those big decisions. We're speaking with Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. We've been talking mostly about the controversy and the maelstrom at the top of the VA with the removal of Dr. Shulkin, the nomination of Admiral Jackson. There's just so much going on around all of this. Do you see this uh, this distraction? I mean, it has to be a distraction, particularly for the upper echelon folks over at the VA. Uh, Do you think that this negatively affects things for the VA, where we've seen quite a bit of positive movement? I'd say over the last year or so at the VA, do you think that this is a, a setback or does it necess- not necessarily need to be? It doesn't necessarily need to be. Uh, I think initially it definitely was a setback. I think many were surprised, particularly by the timing of everything. Um, but folks are resilient. I know many of the senior staff at the VA and I think everyone who is there uh, particularly those who are the permanent civilians who are appointed there, they, they want to do what's right by our veteran community, and they want to ensure that everyone is moving forward, that they're collaborating in a collegial way, and working toward an outcome that is best for all veterans, and, and, and ensuring that the legislation that's been hanging in the balance, and that's that choice slash caring for our veterans legislation uh, that's been waiting this time that didn't unfortunately make it into the omnibus that passed a few weeks ago. Um, They want to ensure that they advance that and that we're advancing solutions that resolve the problems that we just talked about and hopefully move us away from the privatization mark. Wanted to ask you also about that omnibus. It's been a while since we last spoke as we were off last week, and a lot happened since the last time we did, as I said. (laughs) Uh, Most veterans groups seem to be happy with some of the things in the omnibus, but generally disappointed at some of the major items that were left out kind of last minute from the omnibus. Uh, When IAVA took a look at what was included in it, what was left out, I mean, what's the overall balance of it? Do you see it as a a net positive, a missed opportunity? What was the omnibus in IAVA's eyes? In our eyes, it was a net positive. Uh, I mentioned that the choice bill uh, did not make it in. There was going to be asset Uh, relocation, basically BRAC uh, for the VA that was considered to be part of that bill that was left out as well. Um, But despite the things that were left out of the deal, there were many good things that were left in the deal that we were proud to champion, such as uh, expansion in women veterans health care. There's research uh, or excuse me, funding for research into women's uh, prosthetics and into general expansion of facilities for women. There's um, uh, funding for the Clay Hunt Suicide Prevention Act, which is an IAVA-led bill uh, named for Clay Hunt, who was one of our uh, stormers and volunteers several years ago before he died by suicide. And so there's funding that went toward that for mental health. There's funding that went toward burn pits, something you and I talked about a few weeks back. Mm. Uh, that is another one of our big six priorities this year. There's funding for... Um, uh, expansion of, I believe, rehab. And so there's a lot of good stuff that's in the omnibus bill that are all things that IAVA is backed on behalf of post-911 veterans. And in fact, if you go to IAVA.org slash blog, uh, there's a blog that's written by our alleged director, Tom Porter, that outlines the wins that we saw that were in the omnibus. And so what we think is a net positive. 
And that's really what we're looking for is net positives and gains and moving in the right direction, which, you know, in this political climate, Melissa, it seems that the sky is always falling for everybody, no matter which side you're on. Everything that happens is the worst thing that ever happened to me. If everything's the worst, then nothing's the worst. That's kind of how I look at it. But um, overall, the direction of veterans issues, as you talked about your big six, which were fairly recently announced uh, during your Storm the Hill event, uh, how do you think things are moving and should veterans have a positive outlook on the future, even considering things like Dr. Shulkin being removed and choice care funding not getting into the omnibus. Are, are things still moving positively for the veteran community? Absolutely. There's still plenty that's good that's happening in the veteran community. Look, it, it's really easy to focus on the doom and gloom. And I mean, for all of us living in Washington, D.C., I think it's palpable uh, these days as you walk you know, around town and, and talk about issues and all the chaotic nature of things, but there's still much to look forward to. There's still amazing strides that are being made in the veterans community and where unfortunately the VA may falter and where our government may falter, that's where VSOs and veteran empowerment organizations like IAVA and others, that's where we step in to fill that gap. We're there for vet togethers. We are there for uh, our rapid response referral program or RIP, where our veteran transition managers who are master's level social workers are there to help those who are having any issues and, and, and work with them with total case management to support veterans of all eras, not just post 9-11, by the way. But programs like that that we have, programs that I know exist from other VSOs, we're there to step into the breach and to fill in those gaps of where you know, our government is a, a little bit chaotic right now, but I think overall within our space, these are positive times. We're still trending upward in terms of taking care of our best. There's much more that needs to be done, but as long as we maintain a focus of continuing to fund the right projects, continuing to ensure that veterans are being taken care of and that they're first and foremost in any part of legislation or policy that's created, that's what I think we can still continue to look toward happening in the future. We're speaking with Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. And it's been mentioned a couple times during our interview here, and that is the Big Six. Of course, it was just over, I think it was just about a month ago, that the Big Six were officially released by IAVA. So we're about a month in from that on your t policy priorities for 2018. Uh, do you have any progress reports to give us, essentially, on the Big Six? Do you have any, any movement that you've seen or anything you guys have initiated to address those Big Six, which, of course, include... Uh, uh, combating suicide among veterans, sustaining campaign to recognize and improve service for women's veterans, defending veteran and military education benefits, defend and reform government support for today's veterans, initiate support for toxic exposures, and empowerment of veterans who want to utilize cannabis. How are things moving a month in after the announcement of the Big Six? Well, as we were just talking about with the Omnibus, the five out of the six of our Big Six had a win associated with them. And so... Uh, I talked about Clay Hunt, uh, Suicide Prevention Act, and the expansion of, of mental health care funding. I talked about women veterans. There's uh, GI Bill funding. There's, uh, or, or I should say, expanded uh, education benefits funding in the bill. There's also um, uh, burn pits uh, research expansion in the bill as well. So those are big wins in and of itself. I would say stay tuned because we're working on looking for legislation vis-a-vis uh, -vis burn pits and also there's several pieces that are out there now for cannabis that we're uh, looking to back and to continue to promote 
but stay tuned for what's coming in the next, I'd say, month or so and moving forward with uh, possibly legislation with regard to our two newest issues with burn pits and utilizing cannabis. And the cannabis issue uh, remains a big one. There are a lot of people out there working on that. What's the biggest hurdle that you think we need to get past? Because there does seem to be a lot of agreement between the VSOs, a lot of agreement and support in the veteran community for this. But there's just, uh, I guess it's legislative hurdles, legal hurdles. I mean, what's the biggest hurdle that we need to get over in order for there to be uh, any sort of movement on that specific issue? It's the scheduling. Uh, the scheduling of cannabis right now in Schedule 1 which says it has no medical purpose. So it needs to be rescheduled or descheduled altogether, some groups would say. But uh, that's really the big challenge. That's what prevents for increased research. Right now there's one small study that's happening with the VA um, that, that they're having difficulty finding volunteers. Um, so it, it's really a challenge in that the scheduling of it. And then there's also a stig- uh, destigmatization that needs to take place. And, you know, when I talked about the research, uh, or rather the study that's currently taking place within the VA, one of the challenges of that is that, I mean, folks are afraid to sign up. And even with the policy that the VA has of where you can now discuss cannabis use with your provider at the VA, but they can't make recommendations, they can't prescribe, of course. And so there are people who are still afraid, frankly, to talk to their provider about the use of cannabis or even if it could potentially help them because they're afraid that they may lose their benefits, even though they're supposed to be able to do that without fear of retribution. So these are things that are major hurdles that need to be reconciled before we can really see improvement in this area. And really the way that our members see it and have seen it for years, cannabis is seen as another resource that's not an opioid that can possibly help those who are having issues with chronic pain, uh, possibly even mental health injuries like PTSD. So if there's something out there that's going to help us, we want to be able to utilize every available resource. And so we want to make sure that we're empowering those who want to utilize cannabis as a resource. You know, when you say the VA is having trouble finding people willing to take part in that study, I find that hard to believe just because of the number of people we've talked to that are interested in it, that are willing to to do stuff in it. It's, it's a very fascinating subject, really, and one where it just never seems to me like we're getting the full story, particularly from the VA, from the federal government, etc. Well, we've just got a, about a minute and a half or so left here with Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer of IAVA. So I want to ask you, Melissa, if people want to get involved Involved with IAVA, if people want to check out IAVA and what you guys are all about, what is the best way for them to go about doing so? Well, the best way is to check out IAVA.org. If you go to our website, you can check out IAVA in Washington. It's everything that we do in our advocacy. You can check out our rabbit response referral program. That's the uh, master level social workers that I talked to about earlier. And if you look into the resources that they can provide, And if you also just go around our website, you'll see for our members, we host vet-togethers. Our members host vet-togethers themselves. That's essentially your your local community connection within IAVA. We also have a virtual veterans hall that you can be a part of. We don't have the traditional uh, veterans halls as other legacy VSOs do. Our generation connects digitally, has always. And so joining our virtual veterans hall, that will bring you into our community of veterans where you can... uh, experience the camaraderie with folks from across the nation in real time. So IAVA.org, that's where you can find out all sorts of things that you need to know about what we do for the post-911 generation. 
And of course, IABA does not have membership costs. If you want to be a member, all you got to do is sign up and you are a member. And of course, at that website, IABA.org, you can find a PDF of their Big Six, which is their legislative agenda for 2018, headed up by their chief policy officer, Melissa Bryant. Melissa, we want to thank you as always for joining us on the morning briefing. Hope you have a great rest of the week and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you so much, Eric. Talk to you soon. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.